Hello and welcome to the Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let them have it, coach. G'day, everybody, and welcome to the Coaching Podcast. My name's Emma Doyle, and I'm super excited. You can probably hear it in my voice. I get to chat about coaching with Simon Wheatley. He's a friend, uh, fellow speaker. We met uh, 10 years ago, Simon. Oh, my goodness. Where was the ITF? In Mexico, uh, where it was all you can eat and all you can drink. Say no more. We got to know each other. Uh, Simon Wheatley is an international coach, and he's a player development consultant. Formerly, he was the LTA performance coach, education manager, responsible for the development of performance coaches across British tennis. Uh, author of two books, three coaching qualifications, over 50 CPD workshops. Anyway, blah, 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 blah. I could go on, Simon. I'll stop there. Welcome That's to fine. The, welcome to the coaching podcast, mate. Well, thank you, Emma. It's Look, it's been an honor to be invited. And thank you for 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 listening to me and, and and speaking with me because it's always nice when people ask and yeah it's been too long we haven't seen each other with covid and um you know your role changing and my role changing it I'll, I'll, we've been passing ships in the night so i hope that we can be face to face soon and and have a cold beer together that would be fun yeah absolutely well look let's kick it off with of course the vegemite question oh i love it i absolutely love it i could have my one on everything it's it's, it's since i was a kid I've always loved it. It's not like something I found when I was older. Now, one thing I didn't know was, is it, it? did you steal it from us and change it to Vegemite? Or did we steal it from you and then change it to Marmite? I'm not sure. But anyway, it's good. I'm not sure either. Well, because you answered that way, of course, the follow-up question is your best coaching moment and what might be a lesson or two? When I posed this question before, I, I thought long and hard about it because there's been many, many coaching moments and leadership moments and management moments in my career where I've, where I've been touched or I've been inspired and, and uh, you know, I've been humbled. So to find one was difficult. I, I think I think the answer I would give is one of the things that I know that I've been able to do in my career is to inspire people to to be better than what they were, to make them realize that you're not all that you can be and, and you can be a better coach in what you do. And that was pretty much my role at the LTA. I did it with our staff, and which was quite an extensive group of performance education staff and, and the tutor workforce, but also with the coaches themselves. And I would often deliver a lot of workshops, symposiums, conferences, mentoring, tutoring, and one of the things that always really knocked me knocked me for six is just the amount of gratitude that people had for their exposure to me or the content that I'd written. And and, and I don't say that from an arrogant perspective. I say it because I'm actually humbled by it. It was, you know, and I'll tell you a story that happened to me really recently. There was a there was a female that that had, that had taken part, and she was from the Middle East, uh, from Middle East, I think. And and she said she's working in an academy and it's mainly male dominated. And she said she really finds it hard to be heard and to be respected and to have a credible voice within the team. She did my 12 week program and, and the 12 week program, by the way, you know how fast I speak. It's like an, it's like a 12 month program in 12 hours. It's just unbelievably packed. It's like, I think it's like one and a half thousand slides and video clips and stuff. It's, it's, it's nuts really how I did it in 12 weeks. But she said to me that it was the most valuable education she ever received. She felt it was more impactful than all her qualifications she's ever done. She said it was practical and real. She went, not only do I feel more confident as a coach now, I'm able to do things and improve players faster than my peers and colleagues can do, who are men. And she said, I feel so confident now in front of the parents that I can improve their all their strokes and, and tactics that I put my prices up and I'm charging more money and I'm earning more money for my family. And I thought, yes, that's how you make people better. That's how you improve people. You make them more competent. 
you don't just tell them that they're great and they're fine the way they are, that you actually help them to be better. And 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 that was a big step change. In, and I've had it my whole career. It's like I was in Warsaw last weekend and the war coaches said, wow, you've inspired me. Um, I, I, I'm completely changing the way I, I'm going to coach now with little kids. And and then I had it also um, in America. I was in I was in Houston, the River Oaks Tennis Club, and a gentleman, I won't say his name for anonymous, you know, anonymous reasons, and he came up to me and he said, Simon, I've been following you. I've flown in to the workshop. It took me like a three-hour flight to come and see you. I've been following your work for years. And 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 it was really emotional because he said to me, like, you know, I was in a bad place. I was in the finance world, and, and I didn't want to do it. I was following your work. My son's played, and I decided to become a coach because of you. I was like, I didn't know this. I never met this guy before. A complete stranger. So I decided to become a coach. I'm loving what I do. I'm way more relaxed. I'm a better husband, better father. And I just want to say thank you. And I, we, there's these two strangers in this tennis club in Houston. It's like 40 degrees, sweating hell, like hell. And and he and he's opening, people are opening up these stories to me. And I just think, well, I just talk about tennis and coaching and and relationships and, and management and leadership. But but it, it really makes a difference with people. So so I guess I guess that's probably my it's 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 an, it's an iteration of the same story from different people. That's probably my leadership moment and coaching moment that has had the biggest impact on me because it always leaves me flabbergasted on 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 just what we can do for people as educators and as leaders. So long story, but, but no, that's I love it. What I yeah, we love stories on the show. And what it reminded me of is this concept of work-life integration rather than work-life balance. You know, you talk about tennis is just the vehicle, but you talk about relationships, better father, better, you know, uh, better maybe in their partnership at home. That's that's what coaching can do. I, I really it transcends the boundaries of a rectangle with white lines and and some stupid object between two people. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for yeah. sharing that. What about on the flip side? Can you think of a, a coaching moment um, that didn't go so well? I think probably for me, you know, being really open and honest is I was working at the LTA for 14 years and and I was in a leadership position there, right? I was the performance education manager, but essentially it was leading the development of content. And and one one of the things that was very difficult is that, the, you know, the way that my, my redundancy was actually handled at the time was actually really not good. And and it, it was the worst kind of, I would say coaching, it was the worst professional moment in my career. That's probably a better way of, of summing it up because, look, if you've given 14 years to a company and and I had to work throughout the whole of COVID, whereas a lot of my colleagues, 85% of the staff in the organization I was working in, had to, were actually were put on furlough. They were told to stay at home, not work, and they would still be paid 80% of their salary. Now, that didn't happen to me. I was told that I was critical, business critical, and, and essential to continue in my role throughout COVID in order to stay and educate coaches digitally online because they want to stay at home. So I worked really hard through COVID. At the time, I had a baby as well, and <clears throat> and that was tough, being a dad, and, you know, I, I perhaps would have been quite nice to have a bit more time off to be at home and help my, my partner. But anyway, it wasn't to be and I worked and I was grateful for that because I like to work. And and then um, when we came out of COVID, I was told that, you know, your services are no longer required. And that was tough. That was tough for me because I loved my job. I was part of the furniture of British tennis. And and um, so it was probably the worst coaching moment and worst co professional moment to do with coaching because I was delivering courses, writing content, developing online content. Um, I was mentoring people throughout the courses, helping the tutors. I was involved in projects across the business and, and all of a sudden been told, look, you know, we, we need to let you go because we need to save money. 
Um, and of course, now they're taking more staff on and, and they're making more money because Wimbledon's back. And you think, well, perhaps that was a bit short termist. And, and, I, and, I, and I find that very difficult. I had a, a baby that was nine months old. I had no job. And I, and I couldn't travel because travel restrictions were still in place. So I'm a coach educator that wasn't going to be employed by the company that employed me. Didn't have any work. There was no coach education centers that would, would abuse me. And, and, and I couldn't travel abroad to do anything. So, so that's a bit of a squeaky bum moment. And I learned a lot in that period, Emma. But it wasn't, I, I won't romanticize it. It wasn't fun. That. Yeah. And, and, it, and it knocked me for six. And, and look, I bounced back and I'm busier than ever. I'm currently working with over 17 tennis federations in the last 12 months. And I feel very lucky that people are picking up the phone and wanting to use my expertise. And so, so it's, it's gone right for me, but, but there was a tough, that was a tough time. It was definitely the worst moment in my professional career. Mm. But great to hear about the silver lining. Uh, once you do get through it, tough times don't last tough people do as, as they say. Oh, wow. That's nice. so, so thank you for sharing that. And I mean, really, the sliding doors question is the next question. That sounds like a, a pretty pivotal sliding door moment as well. But is there another one in your life that you could share? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Because I think uh, two really quick ones. First one was going to university or not. I didn't come from a very wealthy family. I, we came from a very working class family. My dad was a coach driver. We were real kind of bottom of the ladder kind of family. And and um, and but I was the first person in my family to ever be offered the chance to to go to university and be accepted. And and I. But I didn't know if I could go. We, my parents certainly couldn't afford to help me. It would. I, had to, I knew that I had to take out a full student loan. And, um, and and with that, when you're an 18 year old kid, you know, it's like, do I really want that debt hanging over my head? And I didn't want it. And and I was really encouraged by a lot of people. Like Simon, it's going to really make the be the making of you. And I wasn't sure. I was offered to work as a removal worker. That I was doing that between 16 and 18, moving people's houses. I was a big guy. I could do that. And I loved the camaraderie and banter between the men. It was something I grew up in a little working class town and. Everyone really ripped each other all the time. It was it was brutal, but it really made you. And I thought, well, I could stay there. It's good cash. But that back then it was cash in hands type work. You know, this was over 20, 23 years ago. So I thought, well, do I go or do I not? And in the end, it was it was my old PE teacher, Phil Porton, good friend still, that said to me, look, I went to Cheltenham University. It's a great PE teaching college. You should go. Um, it's a great town. It's a lovely spa town right in the middle of the Cotswolds in the middle of England, as you probably know. And and I went, and Emma, I'm still living here today. I haven't moved my 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 home location from that town. It's um, I'm still living in my university town. I love it. I if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have been involved in in coaching at university. I wouldn't have involved in the tennis team where all my best friends now are are, are still best friends. I'm the, the people I met in my tennis team. I was best man for at their wedding, best mates for now. They're all the same people. And not only that, I, I met my first boss doing county training who then left and then took me with him to the LTA. So I then wouldn't have met him, which means I wouldn't have gone into the LTA and I wouldn't have been a coach educator. And, I, and it really scares me to think that if I would have made the wrong decision, I don't think I'd be sat on this podcast talking to you. Talk about so, a blowout effect. I love oh, oh, Yeah, love it's, it's amazing. How, and I also think, and sorry, I said two stories. The other one was Valencia. We met in Mexico, which I think was 13, but I actually did my first ITF conference in Valencia, which I think was 2009. And that was the first time I'd done an international presentation. Scared, like the, everyone, every coach education director from all federations are there and they come to watch you. Who's little young Simon Wheatley, this British guy talking about under 10 serve. And no one had really talked about the kids serve. You'd have people like Bruce Elliott McAree talk about the high performance biomechanics for many, many years, but no one had really span it to go, well, yeah, fair enough. But most people don't work with those players. Most people work with under 10 kids. What the hell do we do with them? So I, I did this presentation. It was a Prezi. Um, and 
I delivered it and it went down really well. And from that moment, the rest of the world started asking me to do things. So that was a real sliding doors moment. It's like, yeah, I did a few things in the UK, but pre-2009. But after 2009, the world phoned. That's so important that we are able to apply biomechanical principles, even at a young age, but not through the lens cap of coaching adults. Yeah. There's a question about that as well, because yeah, the way we teach the serve at one level is completely different to the way we teach it at another level. And I think that's so important. Even yeah. you know, one thing Tennis Australia did really well back in the day was they took the, the technical app and all the <coughs> models were, of course, were of adults and they put yeah. children in as models. And that yes. was a very clever thing to add into an app back in the day. I can't believe Prezi was, was Prezi even around in 2009? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was one. Of, I, I must have been one of the first early adopters yeah. of that because there wasn't no one else was doing it. So I did it, and then it yeah. blew people away. They're yeah. like, "Whoa, what is this? We we have PowerPoint here with ITF yeah. templates." And I I came on went now. I'm going to do it slightly differently, and and that yeah. was a bit of an innovative move by yeah. me, and it really worked. So, but yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, you those that. are two moments for me in my career where I thought, like, my my career accelerated because of it. Mm. One slowly through the university route, and one very fast through the international mm. speaking and consultancy world. And a great message for our listeners, just to reflect on your point of difference, finding that point of difference that you have as a coach and sharing that with the world as well. I, I love that. Thanks. Well, I, yeah, and just on that, if I may, that's one of the, pro I, I love to read like everyone does. I like to listen to podcasts like everyone does. But you know what? If you want to be a key person of influence in the world, then you have to write. You have to have your own voice. You have to, and you'll write badly when you start. It'll be rubbish. I, I know I've written two books. It's rubbish when you start. But just keep going and you'll find some great sentences. You're like, wow, did I write that? That No one else is saying that. That's really interesting. I should share that in the world. But everyone is limited to take 140 characters on Twitter or Facebook. And so they just write statements or they copy other people's words. But when you start to write and have your own point of view, I always say write more than you read. It's a great lesson for people that write more than you read, because then you you become the person that people listen to and buy your stuff. But, it, but I know so many people that have read every leadership book in the world, but they're still not a leader. You know, they still haven't changed that much. They, they've, they've got knowledge and they've got my stories and anecdotes, but they haven't really moved themselves on. So that's just a bit of a tip that I've, I've always liked to give people. On that, reflecting on my own journey of spending the last few years writing this book, What Makes a Great Coach, definitely when I first started writing, I would reread it and go, who the hell is going to read this? This is rubbish. There's nothing unique about this. But that's why it's called, I don't know, feels like manuscript 55 that, I've, that I'm probably going to release to the world because now I read it and I go, oh, that's good. Or I'm proud of that sentence. And it takes practice. It takes time. And yeah. also it is not, nothing wrong with also getting help. If writing isn't your number yeah. one way of best communicating, one, one of the successes that I've had is in just recording speaking because i'm a speaker sure. so sure. and then having either someone help dictate your words as well so i love that content 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 you've got to get it out there with with your point of difference to the world yeah I, I, people people always want you if you have a point of view and and if you don't run with the crowd as well if you if you challenge things and you, it's not to be edgy but it's just to be a thought leader and that's what thought leaders do they're, they're constantly being creative with how they see the world and how they see their world their world and and they're trying to shake it up in a different way and, and i've always tried to be slightly on the on the on the on the spectrum on that so our next question is our guiding question on the coaching podcast in one to a maximum of three words what makes a great coach okay so the three words that i've chosen are pragmatic 
regenerative and stress tolerant. So let me let me just unpack those three words, you know, for, for, the, for the listeners. Pragmatic in a sense that, you know, coaching, certainly in my world, is, is a problem-solving industry. It's like, how do you keep making your athletes marginally better week on week, month on month, year on year? It's, it's always about how can you help accelerate the learning, right? So, and I think people that are pragmatic, coaches that are pragmatic, good coaches, they really are logical, realistic, progressive. They're, they're, they're not too abstract, actually. Not jumping all the time from, from the new wave, the new trend, the new fad. You know, they're, they're, they're athlete-centered. Um, they're analytical. I always say some of the best coaches in the world should be like Sherlock Holmes. If you ever watch Sherlock Holmes, it's like that deductive reasoning. It's like there's a problem. Take a look at the blah, 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 blah. That's the answer. And I, and I think some of the best coaches really can process quickly. They have like tennis IQ. You know, we say people with IQ have like really quick spatial reasoning or abstract um, uh, numbers with numbers. They really can do numbers fast in their head. I think coach, good coaches can do that. It takes time to learn that. It's a real skill to master your trade in coaching. But certainly the idea of being pragmatic and practical, uh, it's not just reading from the book and being theoretical as a coach. You have to do things to improve people. It's all about shifting thinking, feeling, and behavior. It's always what a good coach is doing. Now, the second one is regenerative. And I, and, I, and I truly believe that great coaches are constantly a never-ending improvement. And I, and I think they do it slowly. I, again, I don't think they jump from fad to fad, and they're not seduced by every new thing they hear. There, there's a barrier to learning to them, i.e. they won't be – they'll sniff out the rubbish, the BS, but, but they're always evaluating their identity, significance, and competence. So I'll run through those three things. Their identity is, you know, who am I? Who am I at my best? Who, who am I at my worst? How do I keep improving my – ability to to work with different types of athletes um who do i want to become that's my significance how do i want to become a talk coach or i want to work with better with athletes or i want to work more in the psychology side of the game or i want to work more on the tour as an analyst or how do i where do i want to go so this is who i am but where do i want to be and then what competence do i need to get there and if that's the key word right it's like how do i it's like the lady that i said at the start of the podcast she feels that she's more competent at improving strokes and tactics with her athletes. Therefore, she has the right to charge more money in order to be at the same level as her peers. And that creates you know, a, a, a catapult effect on, on, on her life. Um, so, so, so certainly people that are continually reflective, that they're having coaching conversations with themselves all the time. There's this inner dialogue to get better, to get better, to get better. Not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. We say chewing gum. We're chewing gum all the time as a coach. It's never quite good enough. And there's, there's this is kind of like pursuit of excellence and openness to experience, feedback to themselves. And they're always striving for learning opportunities. And I really believe that the best coaches in the world are regenerative in, in, in nature. And then my final one is stress tolerant. It's stressful, this world. There's long hours. There's parents that are on your back. It's, it's, you're losing players to other centers, other facilities, other academies. You're moving them on. It's one of the only jobs I can think of that when you do a good job, you lose your business. I don't think of many other industries where that happens, but but it, there's academy politics and the stress of the role if you're director of tennis, stress of rejection. Why do they go to that coach and not me? I want a chance. I can do a good job. There's, there's just stresses all around you. And, and, I, and I really believe that the, some of the best coaches that stay in this industry and do a good job are the ones that are tolerant of that stress and that are not, you know, not, 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 not destabilized by it. They're not thrown off their, 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 their chair and, and I know a lot of coaches that really struggle with the sport and they struggle with the industry because they they find it all too overwhelming, all too much, all too encompassing. So, so people that can be stress tolerant, I think, are, are really have the upper hand in having longevity in this career. And finally, Simon, this is our opportunity to ask you: when you meet other successful coaches, what sparks your curiosity? What do you want to know more about? 
Sure. So I've had the pleasure of meeting many CEOs, COOs, technical directors, performance directors, people that are in high leadership positions within the sporting industry. And the question I've always asked them, but always a lot, is what separates them from others? Like, why you? Why you in that role? What led you to that role? What, you know, and it often destabilizes a lot of people because they often get asked the question, you know, how do you change culture? And, and, you know, what's your strategy, method of designing a strategy? And there's kind of pragmatic things. But, but I think when I, when I, talk to the person and say you know what really makes you competent enough to do that role it's it can, it can really throw people but and you get different answers right you, my work ethic stands me aside you know i work 90 hours a week and, and i love it and some people say well you know my creative thinking my ability to align common purpose around remotely among teams it's solving systemic problems it's to to inspire and create a vision it's to build strategy you know a lot of people give the typical answers and but it's always interesting to see what those answers are and then then i often ask them questions that's linked to the, my my three key things in coaching which is you know how do you remain stress tolerant when there are so many external forces out there to get you because everyone thinks that these jobs of you know these, these kind of high level individuals at senior leadership level and management level you know everyone wants these jobs because they're high salaries but let's be very clear they're also highly stressful you've got people coming after you every minute of every day and you really want to be in that position? Are you competent enough to deliver board reports to, to really smart, intelligent people every quarter and they're slamming you for every decision you make and you've got to deal with that and then you've got legal cases coming in every day and whew, these jobs are tough and you want to be careful what you wish for sometimes when you're envious of these people because they're not all, um, they're not all roses, I can tell you. So, And then the final thing I always ask them is, I always think this is the most interesting one, is like, what did you learn from each of your roles and what was the cumulative impact of that on you? So have you changed through the roles that you've done? You know, and that's always interesting to hear people's answers like, you know, oh, I learned a lot about finance and budgeting. I learned about board level management there. I learned about um, scanning the rest of the world on what everyone else is doing for research in order to bring it into my department. I looked at the hiring and firing and turnaround management and consultancy hiring in order to do reviews. So, you know, when you hear these people and what they do in order to, to jump ship, and what did they learn when they jumped ship? Because when you jump ship into a different organization, you'll you'll be embedded into the culture of that organization. And then you take that with you and then you drop that into the next one. And then you learn from that one. And the cumulative impact of that really makes these people tour de forces in what they do. So, so you know, the competence hierarchy of, of, of high performing leaders is, is, to me, very interesting to, to kind of unpack. Mm, tour de forces. <laughs> I love it. Some the French. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> What messages keep showing up in your life? Some of the messages that are coming to me right now is we're in it. We're in a state of um, well, something that's, that's really current is that there's a lot of we're in a lack of coaches in the world. So the coaching workforce is diminishing. There are less and less people qualifying as tennis coaches. So that that's something that um, Tennis Australia has spoken to me about. The UK has a real issue with right now, and that's because of Brexit. So there's some political reasons. There's some also some covid reasons um, and i think there's a digital revolution coming which is also preventing maybe young people for moving into the coaching role and, and i'm really worried for our profession i mean i'm really worried because there are other things like pickleball and padel coming at us 100 miles an hour and i'm not sure and you look and sometimes i do believe we're all corks bobbing along in the ocean driven by social change that we really can't do much about because you know these external forces are there and we have to just go with the movement um so, so, so 
so one of the challenges I'm thinking about all the time is how do we keep making our profession attractive for the younger generation? And how do we keep the older generation in it? It'd be interesting to see your thoughts on this. One of the one of my hypotheses, and it's an hypothesis, is that one of the reasons why younger people aren't going into coaching as a full-time role, might be they're 18, 19, they do it part-time because good cash as a student, but as a career, is that the digital revolution, the digitalization of money as really it means that coaching now is is a role that you will earn less money than you would maybe 20, 30 years ago. And look, everyone knows that. It was a cash-in-hand job, right? You know, you have $30 for a lesson and, you know, does the taxman see all of that? Well, we know he doesn't. And and now you can't hide money. It's one of the reasons why if you try to hire a builder or a plasterer or an electrician or a plumber and they send you the invoice, you're like, Jesus, these guys are charging more money than me. <laughs> How is that possible? They were the working tradesmen and they were the you know good a good value for money to hire a painter for the day. Now they're it's because you just can't hide money anymore. And and that's right, of course. It's right that you can't hide money, and it's right that we pay our taxes and contribute to society. But the problem is with that is that if you earned forty thousand dollars twenty years ago, maybe you paid six thousand dollars in tax, but now you have to pay twelve thousand dollars. Therefore, you're actually worse off doing the role than you were 20, 30 years ago. And people aren't stupid, they know that. They know they can earn way more money in a way easier way. In, in other industries, I mean, there are just so many more jobs available to young people now that I don't necessarily. So in Denmark, they have this problem. They just cannot qualify tennis coaches in Denmark. It's not seen as a as a credible career. It's seen as a kind of a get you through university, have a bit of pocket money, a spare change. So they have to they have to recruit from abroad all the time. They really struggle to recruit coaches and qualify coaches. And I worry that that's a trend that could be could be followed by by the rest of the world. So so that's something that's coming up quite a lot. It is something that we need to focus on too, isn't it? I mean, we need to put energy into into that and solving that problem because it is a great profession. But I I remember even when I was in my 20s, someone say, what do you do? I say, I was a tennis coach. And they go, oh, I'm like, what else do you do? It's like, you, that, yeah. that can't be what you do full time. Uh, yeah. So I'm sure with the types of workshops that you deliver and it, it, we have to ignite passion. I mean, it is about igniting something that often is there but maybe it's dormant or maybe they you know it's also thinking yeah. stretching that 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 reach of what a defined tennis coach is yeah well yeah. and I, well and i i also think we we need to sell the earning capacity in the in the career and i don't think we've done a very good job at that because well, I'll tell you a story. I, I, this was a really nice story. I was at Birmingham Edge Baston Priory. You probably know it well, and it's where the tournament happens. And and there was a, a, a young female coach. She's at University of America, a good player. She's studying law in America, and she came back. She was doing some coaching in the summer. And I said to her, hey, Kate, what are you going to do when you finish? Are you going to be like coaching? She said, yeah, I love coaching. I said, you're going to be coach full-time? She went, kidding, aren't you? I was like, oh, okay. Um, what do you mean? She went, no, I can start my starting salary in America as a lawyer be $100,000. You know, it's like, as far as I can see, the more the more coaches can charge as fast as they can around the world, the more chances we have at attracting more people into the profession. So instead of you saying, oh, a tennis coach, if you come and work at my tennis club, you can earn $30,000 a year. Like, no, you could be earning $100,000. Problem is with that is, of course, who pays for that? It's the clients. And therefore, you have to upgrade the fee to a significant amount. But it doesn't really change in the last 30 years. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I remember I remember when I left um, my role and I was working at East Coast Tennis Club here in Cheltenham and my, my hourly rate was like £30 an hour. When I left the LTA, I phoned up. I said, look, if I want to coach full-time again because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, what would be my hourly rate? He said, £30 an hour. I said, but Steve, you know, I, I was here 15 years ago and it was £30 an hour. He went, yeah. 
hasn't gone up. Just, it's just absolutely plateaued. So, like, how on earth is that possible? So, you you have an industry in coaching where everyone thinks it's quite good because you're hitting tennis balls. So, oh my God, you're lucky to be paid thirty, forty dollars an hour. But the reality is, is that the world has changed and, and the the cost of living crisis is real. So, how on earth are we going <laughs> to entice more people into the profession if we pay them so bad? So, so averagely, it's not badly because there are other jobs that are paid badly, but it's average now. It's not. It's not. It's not above average, and that's the problem. So, what creative uh, solutions do you see to solve this problem? Yeah, and look, I don't say I, I confess to having all the answers. It's a new problem. I think it's been in the since COVID, especially because a lot of part time. And this happened in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, there were a lot of part time coaches doing under twenty hours a week. So, what happened is that when COVID came, they found other part time jobs that could pay them similar amounts of money that could do their twenty hours a week, and they haven't come back. Now, maybe they slowly will and, and it'll just kind of even itself out, but maybe it won't. And and the Dutch aren't sitting on their morals and, and, and laurels and saying, well, we'll wait. That they go, no, we have to put on more courses, more, we have to reduce the price of education. What one of the things that I think is really interesting is there is a barrier mostly around the world to perhaps the price of the, the qualification. It's not an expensive barrier, it's not like college. In, in America, where it's extortionate fees per year, but it's not nothing either for a young person, 17, 18, 19, 20 year old. So one of the ideas that I think would be interesting to play around with was the idea of a loan system where where coaches could apply to do a course and not have to pay up front, but they could do it for free and then pay back later on uh, once they start earning enough money. I think that would be now that would take a big investment from the governing body. But well, if you don't invest in your people, you have no workforce. And then what does the future of tennis coaching look like? So, so that could be, an, and that happens in the university system in the UK. You know, you apply for a loan and you pay it back when you have a job and you're earning enough money, and, th- and then the amount is really minimal to pay back. So it's not a big deal. But that might encourage more people, and then they might go, "Well, you know what? I'm, I'm up for this. This is great." I think people more chance. I know I don't think we should devalue this. That money should still go to the provider of the education that needs to pay for expertise. But if we can create an entry route in, which is subsidised for everyone. And and then granted for everyone, it's a grant. It's a grant, a subsidy, and a loan. I think that we may have more people going. Yeah, I'll do that because it's not a huge investment when they're young up front. Did you ever, as a coach, you talk about um, being stress tolerant? Did you ever have a time where you thought, mm, "No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave this industry. This isn't for me." Yeah, ma- mainly through bad management, bad boss. You know, like it really is toxic, huh? When you have a relationship with a boss that's just not good mm. it's uh, i think that's more stressful than anything and there's always responsibility on you and them to to collaborate and to make it functional at the best it'll never be optimal but it could be it could be minimally functional and um, i think that's where i've probably been most stressed um when i've wanted to affect change and it's, there's too much red tape and barrier and rhetoric around policy dot change and it takes things too too long. That's one of the things I've loved about being on my own right now is that things can happen so much faster when you're working on your own. Okay, it's not always as collaborative. It's not always at a scale. But, but in saying that, I'm speaking to more coaches. I think in the last 12 months, Emma, I've spoken to over, I think, 100, no, not 100,000, 80,000 coaches or something in the last year. I mean, it's, 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 I've never spoken to that many people in 14 years at the LTA. But in less than 12 months, I was able to really scale out my, 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 my content and my workshops. So, so yeah, certainly for me, stressed. I've str- I've been stressed at work when that when I felt that I wasn't wanted or or I wasn't used to my max. No, I wasn't wanted. I wasn't used to my maximum uh, effect, mm. and that there's always this. 
I don't think it's a boys' culture at the LTA. I think it's deeper than that. I think it's an ex-players' culture, which is actually more dangerous. Um, there really is like, well, if you haven't played the game to a high level, sorry, you're not in our gang. And I think, <laughs> I think disclusion is one of the most easiest ways to bully people. And and I and I, and I don't think necessarily that it's a healthy climate that when you're in organisations that have that kind of. <laughs> Disclusion for for individual intelligence in tennis. So so yeah, that viewpoint diversity is the most important diversity in my point in, in my opinion, and accessing all the all the intelligence you can to to, to optimal effect is is one of the fastest ways of improving organizations and people. So uh, that's always been stress for me, and I've had to suck it up and I've had to deal with that. Um, but it's not been easy. I won't lie. Mm. So what about outside of tennis? I know you've had the opportunity to speak to amazing um, performance leaders and whether it be a business or even another sport outside of tennis. Could you share a story around a moment that uh, someone came into your life that you went, oh, wow, that's different or that's unique or here's a different way yeah. of thinking? Look, one, one of the, one of the, the two, I guess there's two, two stories that come to mind on that. I was really, I was really impressed with um, a gentleman called Peter Keane. Peter Keane was, Ex UK performance director, so he wasn't a tennis guy at all. He wasn't, but he, but he was, he was a very, very smart guy. And he, and he, what I learned from him was to see, see the issue, see the problem, and zoom out from it from afar, and and really look at the issue in a different way. So he was someone that was very analytical, very, very. Um, what was the word I would say? It was like he was like a philanthropist now. Actually, he he helps organisations of all types. And and he was a really he had a really smart brain around problem solving and a really different way of looking at things um, financially a really different way of looking at things versus principles. So as a practical example, you know we had we had performance directors come into the LTA and, and do strategy documents, strategy documents, and he said I want to zoom out from strategy, you know, culturally strategy for breakfast was his saying, and I, and I I believe that as well, and 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 I learned from him that by consulting with the people, which I'd never seen before. Uh, and he went around the country and he consulted with everyone. And I was so impressed by, I mean, he really was a remarkable man. Um, and the way he was able to hold the room and to engage the the romantic rebels and the outright terrorists, that was a real skill, man. And I don't have that skill yet. I'm working on that all the time to go, when someone blatantly disagrees with you in front of your face, to, again, to be stress tolerant and to be able to 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 deal with that and one of the things i learned from him is that he he was amazing at this and i think he said to me that he learned this from from um, from freud or was it or was it carl rogers this eminent psychologist and he he said one of the things you do when when someone's ranting or or someone has a different point, viewpoint to you it's not always about ranting is that you that you really listen to their you really listen to what they're saying you don't try and react you don't interrupt you don't try and win the arguments the worst thing you can do but you pull back and you then summarize and paraphrase what they said back to them. People love that because it shows that you've listened to them. And people like nothing more than to be shown that you listen to what they have to say. And and he used to do it all the time. And, and, and it's not until he told me that he was doing it that I watched him doing it. I went, oh, that's a real skill that you've learned there. That's not just organic. You've learned to sit back, stay calm, listen to what they say, deeply watch and stay focused with his eyes into the eyes of your, of your opponent. And... And then quickly say, okay, so if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is this, and you're frustrated because these things have happened in the past. Um, one of the things that could be a solution to that is if we do more of this. Is have I understood your point correctly? 
A, it gives you time to think also about your response, but B, it really shows the individual that you're listening. So that's just a really practical example of something I learned from good leaders they, they do when they're, when they're a target to the audience. Well, look, I had a mentor that was a business consultant his whole life, and he was someone that would work at high-level board management. So, and he would often be an executive coach to executive directors and, you know, Mayfair in London and Coca-Cola and KPMG. I mean, PricewaterhouseCoopers, these are big multi-organizations. And he would deliver multiple change programs for these. Changing Change was his big program and um, within these organizations. And, and one of the, I guess one of the things that I learned from him was to engage expertise in a way that that really makes people feel like they're it's facilitative leadership that was probably what i learned more rather than kind of autocratic leadership the hierarchical down it wasn't like i'm the boss do what i say and get in line man because you know that's what you need to do and he really talked about you know the leader being around the table rather than at the top of the table and look it's all the cliche things we kind of know now but but i didn't know it back then it was something that was really interesting to me to say look great leaders listen a lot and and they'll engage a lot and They'll say they're wrong and they'll admit their mistakes and, and they'll ask for your advice and they'll want you to manage upwards a lot and they're constantly wanting you to push them and challenge them. They're, they're seduced by praise as well. So so praise is both ways. You always want praise from them. You're doing a good job. You're my soldier. But you have to give them praise for what they do and that's a reciprocal act and, and reciprocal praise and encouragement is something you need to do in any working environment. And praise is given so rarely by people. You know, it's always finding, it's always looking at people through a deficit lens, which always worries me and troubles me in coaching. It's like, you know, you're not doing a good enough job. You can do that better. You can work hard. You can come into work early. It's like a machine gun of, of negative perception on people. And it could be reality, not just perception. But 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 to find the good in people and be a dolphin trainer and keep feeding the fish when they're doing well is, is something that I'm a big advocate on. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, Simon, you know that we could chat forever. <laughs> You okay, and I about okay, coaching, okay. and I I would love to do it again just for, just for fun, not not only for the benefit sure. of all the amazing listeners. Uh, you have a brain that I always love to listen to what you have to say. You take the science and you take the art and you bring it together as a coach. So I'm so grateful for that. And this episode's reminded me of like two of the six human needs. One is significance, this positive reinforcement, and and the other one was belonging that inclusive yeah. environment to feel like you belong that you really reinforce in a pragmatic way so thank you <laughs> thank you for being a coach oh, and thank you for thank making you. me a better coach um so how can people oh. find and learn more about you oh well first of all those words are, are really nice so thank you very much I, i'm on linkedin simon wheatley you'll see my big round face i'm sure and and then i'm also on instagram wheatley tennis 20 22 and then facebook is on there i i just haven't got to tiktok yet i don't think i can do it emma i don't <laughs> think i can do it i'm going to stay on those three platforms for now but um but but yeah if people want to reach out in any way possible then i would love to love to connect with people i i'm, I'm a deeply connected person and i'm a, a very extrovert and and i love co-creation with everyone around the world so so please um do reach out and listen emma i'm so pleased to see you doing so well in the states and around the world you You've pivoted into a, a different direction and I'm just watching you flourish and uh, it's really nice. So I'm really pleased for you. All right. Well, thank you for those words as well, Simon. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by Transition Coach for Athletes, a global coaching, mentoring and US placement service. The service helps athletes navigate the often challenging world of choosing your best college fitness performance. Visit www.transitioncoachforathletes.com. That's the number four.
If you company are interested in sponsoring the coaching podcast, reach out to info at emmadoyle.com.au. In one to a maximum of three words, what makes a great coach? Oh, it's one of those questions where um, you're going to constrict me to actually uh, yes. to actually sing the three words. Um, okay, I think someone that's uh, resilient because it's tough. It's hard working with people. Uh, the second word I would say is uh, they have to have a level of leadership. People have to follow them. When you're a good coach, you're a magnet to people. Um, so I think leadership and, uh, yeah, and following is something really, really important. And I think the other word is, uh, I think, just role model. There's two words. I apologize. But uh, if you don't uh, give a sense of uh, aspiration for people, if you don't actually demonstrate, you know, I really believe attitude reflects leadership. And if the leadership that you give, the attitude of your players will mimic that and role play that into their hands.